Uh, typically, I'm not crying till the end of the service, but man, after that, that was awesome. That was incredible. So, so cool to see, uh, man, God continue to save the next generation here at this campus. So, congrats to, to Reese and Riley. And uh, if you're in this room and you have, you've made a decision to follow Jesus but haven't got baptized yet, I'd really encourage you to do that, to, to think about maybe taking that step of faith of going public. So, I'd love to talk to you about that, or, and I encourage you to pray through that. But uh, yeah, thanks for being here today, guys. I'm so glad that we can be together, and uh, whether you're joining us on the live stream or physically here in this room. Uh, and if we've never had the chance to meet before, my name is Colin. I lead United, our young adult ministry here, which is an absolute blast to be a part of. Uh, I say this every chance I, I get, but if you're in this room and you're a young adult and haven't had the chance to get connected to community, I'd love to help you do that. I'd love to help you be a part of uh, what God is doing in United and uh, that community. But uh, man, I, I just love what I get to do, being part of teaching and helping young adults follow Jesus. It is just such an incredible thing. And honestly, I, I really can't believe that I get to do that, that I get to do what I get to do. Uh, and I really mean that because um, four years ago, uh, I was kind of on a pretty different trajectory in life. Uh, I was a follower of Jesus, but four years ago, I began my career not in full-time ministry, but in structural engineering, actually. And so uh, in 2018, I graduated from the Ohio State University, go Bucks. Uh, and I, yeah, yeah, there you go. And I came back in town, right, uh, to, to begin my career of designing buildings as a structural engineer. Um, but right around that same time, God began to put these like deep desires on my heart to begin to reach some of my friends who didn't know him and, and were also graduating and coming back into town at that time. And so me and DJ Douglas, who probably many of you guys know, uh, we began investing in this group uh, of guys uh, to teach them and to you know, show them who Jesus was. Uh, and as we were doing that for a couple years, the opportunity eventually presented itself to, to go into full-time ministry, to get what I get to do now. And I remember when that opportunity presented itself, uh, I was excited, I was nervous, I was scared, I was all sorts of things, right? It, it was this big transition that uh, was kind of presented to me. Um, but one of the questions I began to ask was like, what, what was I supposed to do with the six and a half years that I had just spent in the structural engineering world? Right? Because I, I really, I enjoyed structural engineering. I, I enjoyed my time studying it at Ohio State, and I felt like I was becoming a pretty decent structural engineer. And uh, over the course of six and a half years, I had accumulated like a lot of engineering stuff, all right? Like I had accumulated design books and building code books, which are real page turners if you guys want to borrow them. Um, and then, you know, over the course of my degree, I accumulated a lot of knowledge about things like math and physics, 
about building material like steel, lumber, and concrete. And over the course of my full-time you know, career, I, I had two and a half years of on-the-job experience working towards becoming a professional engineer. And so this question I, I was now facing was, now that God was doing something new in my life, like now that he was leading me down this different trajectory, what was I supposed to do with all this old stuff, right? Like, like how was my knowledge of steel and lumber supposed to help me teach young adults about Jesus? Uh, was all this stuff just a waste, right? Like, how did it translate to this new thing that God was doing in my life? And I remember talking to one of my coworkers at the time kind of about this whole thing, and they told me, they told me like, well, at least you'll have some really good construction illustrations for when you preach. And I was like, Dude, that's, not, that's like not helpful, right? Like four years of school and two and a half years of my life, all for a couple construction illustrations, right? And I think I've only used one so far, and Pastor Kevin suggested it anyways, so like it didn't seem like it was worth it, right? Or at least it was not the most efficient way to get here. And so this question I was still facing was now that God is doing something new in my life, what was I supposed to do with all this old stuff? Well, I don't know if you've experienced a similar life transition where you've had to ask a question like that, but I think that question is actually gonna be very helpful uh, for our conversation today. And so in the past couple weeks, we have been beginning this new series looking through the book of Acts, this incredibly unique book of the Bible. And this is really gonna be a three-part series where we are uh, discovering or rediscovering maybe the message of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the method of Jesus. And we're still kind of in the first part of this journey where we're, we're discovering what was the core message of the early church? Like, what was the message that those who actually knew Jesus taught, preached, and based their life on? Right, what was the message the early church was proclaiming that turned the first century Roman world on its head? And what was the message that, as we'll see today, that, that some were willing to even die to, die to proclaim? What was that message? And I think most importantly, the reason we have been uh, uh, studying the book of Acts is to ask the question, like, what would happen if the people of God today rediscovered that message? What if that message began to grip the hearts and the minds of the people in this room? What would it do in our lives? Well, for today's conversation, we have the privilege of talking about how all the old stuff of the Bible relates to that message. Really, the question we're going to be thinking about is how does the Old Testament this massive part of our Bible is about four-fifths of our Bible. How, how does it relate to the message of Jesus that the early church was proclaiming, right? And I think this is a very important question for us to consider and for us to think through, not only because of the size of the, the Old Testament. Like I said, it's a massive part of our Bibles, but also because I think if we were honest, uh, we would admit that the Old Testament, it's kind of the part of the Bible that's the most confusing, Right? It's kind of the part of the Bible that we're not sure what to do with. How does this relate to Jesus and the message of Jesus? For example, I don't know if you've ever tried to do this, but it's like tried to share or summarize the story of the Bible, maybe to somebody who's unfamiliar with it. But it can typically go, typically go like this, that we'll start uh, in the first three chapters of the Bible, right? Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so we'll talk about Adam and Eve in the garden, and we'll talk about the serpent and the forbidden fruit. And after getting through creation in the fall, the temptation is to flip all the way to like the Gospel of John or, or the book of Romans, right? To get all the way to the New Testament so we can talk about Jesus. And, and, and I think that makes sense, but I think at the same time when we do that, uh, whether we mean it or not, we kind of communicate that like Genesis 4 through the rest of the Old Testament is relevant or, or that it doesn't matter, that it doesn't translate to the person of Jesus, 
And, and don't hear me wrong, I think it's a great thing to focus on Jesus. He, as we're going to see today, he is the hero of this whole entire story. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what it looks like to share the message of Jesus who, with those who are unfamiliar with the Bible. But still, sometimes when we consider the Old Testament, uh, we find ourselves asking a similar question I did when I was looking at my old engineering stuff, of, of what are we supposed to do with all this old stuff, right? How, how does it translate? Was it all just a waste? How does it relate to the message of Jesus? And actually, that question, I think it's not just unique for those of us in this room. The book of Acts reveals that the early church, specifically the Jewish followers of Jesus who would have been familiar with the Old Testament, they were asking a very similar question. And so would you guys flip in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, verse 11. It's going to be on page 887 in those Bibles under your seats, so you guys can find your way there. And as you guys are getting there, uh, I just want to remind us of something that Pastor Tony has shared at, that's, I think, very important for this conversation as we've been thinking about the book of Acts. He shared that over a third of the passages, over a third of the book of Acts, is speeches, right? Indicating how important or how central the message of Jesus, the proclamation of this message, was to the early church. Now, this might sound obvious, but I think it's worth pointing out that none of the speeches in Acts, not a single one, directly references or quotes another New Testament book. And, and that might be obvious because, of course, the, the New Testament was being written during the times that these events in the book of Acts are unfolding. They were, it was being written simultaneously. And so if, if these speeches aren't referencing or quoting the New Testament, what are they quoting? Well, time and time again, when the message of Jesus is proclaimed by the early church, there are often quotations, direct quotations or allusions to the Old Testament, of course. And so here are just a few examples of that. Pastor Tony talked about last week Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. And in that sermon, Peter is going to quote from the prophet Joel. He's also going to go back to a psalm of David to show, uh, to, to proclaim the message of Jesus. And then in the very next chapter, uh, Peter is once again going to quote, uh, actually go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and quote it from Genesis, God's word to Abraham. And it wasn't only Peter who did this. Uh, the apostle Paul on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, he's going to go and he's going to quote from the second psalm. But I think maybe this idea is most clear in the Apostle Paul's defense of the message of Jesus when he's on trial in Acts 26. This is what Paul says. He says, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. And the prophets and Moses being a way of referring to the whole Old Testament. So Paul's saying, I'm saying nothing except what the Old Testament has been saying. And what has it been saying, Paul? Well, here's his summary. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people, to the Gentiles. And so I think when we read passages like this, we're like, did, did we miss something? Like, did the early church know something that we don't? Because they seem to see a whole lot more relevance to all the old stuff than we see sometimes, right? And I think there's many passages we could go to to understand how the early church viewed the Old Testament, but I think there's none better than Acts chapter 7, which is the famous sermon uh, of Stephen, Stephen's famous sermon. 
And I think that this sermon, it's famous not only because it would lead to Stephen becoming the first Christian martyr to die for his faith. He gets actually stoned in response to this message. But also it's famous because of its large and impressive size. In about 50 verses, uh, Stephen summarizes the whole entire Old Testament. He summarizes all the old stuff. Like, like it's pretty incredible. Uh, and because of its size, unfortunately today, we're not gonna have a chance to read through the whole thing uh, and maybe dig down as deep as we would like. Instead, really all we have time for today is like a summary of a summary of the Old Testament. That's kind of it. But um, if you guys are reading your Bible reading plans, right, which I hope some of us are engaging in that, you'll, of course, have a chance to read through Acts chapter 7. Uh, and if you aren't, I'd encourage you to check that out or even just take a look at Acts chapter 7 this week because it is an incredible passage. But I think the best place to start to understand the meaning of Stephen's sermon is actually looking at the accusations thrust against him that prompted this sermon, which is why I asked you guys to flip to Acts chapter 6. So hopefully you guys have had a chance to get there by now. But this is what Acts chapter 6 says. This is kind of the context that prompted this sermon. It says, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. And they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And so as Stephen's out uh, proclaiming and preaching the message of Jesus, the Jewish people, that's who the they is, they start to make some accusations against him and against his message. And did you notice what those accusations were? It says that they accused him of being against Moses and against God, that his message was against this holy place and against the law, and that he's accused of quoting Jesus, of, of saying that he would destroy this place and change the customs of Moses. So what is all this? What, what, do, what do these things have in common, or why is this such a big deal? Well, New Testament scholar uh, and historian N.T. Wright, he would say that like, the two, key, two of the key symbols of the Jewish faith at this time was the temple and the law. And the law came through Moses. It, it was the Mosaic law. It was the customs that were handed down from Moses. And the temple was, was this holy place, or the place that Jesus allegedly said he would destroy. That's what that was referring to, the temple, which wasn't just a building to the Jewish people, but the house of God. And so here are the Jewish people claiming that the message of Jesus was against the very heart of the Jewish faith, that it was against the very heart of all the old stuff, the temple and the law that came through Moses. And this was a huge deal because you don't just throw away 1,500 years of religious tradition overnight, right? That would have been unthinkable. Humanity has always been very resistant to changing our traditions. If you don't believe me, consider this. Remember this whole thing? Remember when, remember when like all of Cleveland got angry uh, because we changed our 127-year-old baseball tradition? Although right now, we're probably pretty excited about it because they're, they're winning, right? But, but nevertheless, right, like we, we don't like uh, a change in tradition. Some of us are still upset about this, right? And so it, it would have been even harder to change 1,500 years of religious tradition, right? And that's what Stephen, in this message that he was proclaiming, was accused of. And so how is he going to respond, right? How is he going to make a defense of the message of Jesus, 
Well, before we talk about how he responds, I think it's really important for our conversation today to point out how he didn't respond. And so first off, we're gonna see that he didn't disregard the Old Testament. He didn't just begin with the story of Jesus as, as if the Old Testament was irrelevant. He doesn't just quote Romans because like we said, it did not exist yet. And not that there would have been anything wrong with that, but it wouldn't have worked in this context that he found himself in. You know, the Jewish people, they would have been very suspect of any brand new religious movement in their day. And so instead of starting with the New Testament, he goes back to the old. He wants to show that this new movement, this new thing that God's doing, that it's rooted in history. It's rooted in what God has done in the past. It's a continuation of all that old stuff, all right? But we also see that his view of the Old Testament, I think it's very different than some of the ways that we tend to view the Old Testament because he doesn't disjoint the Old Testament either. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, in this sermon, we're gonna see that like Stephen mentions some of the big-time Bible heroes, like some of the huge Bible characters, guys like Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, guys like uh, Joshua and King David and King Solomon. He basically runs through like all the VeggieTale classics, right? He, he kind of leaves out Jonah, but besides that, he's like hitting all the big-name dudes, Right? And, but here's the thing. He doesn't view the Old Testament as this grab bag of stories, each having their own little moral. That even though the Old Testament was, uh, is, is composed of 39 books written over the course of 1,500 years by 35 different authors, he doesn't view it as fragmented. Instead, he sees it telling a unified story. That even though these authors wrote from incredibly diverse circumstances, he sees it telling one cohesive story. And so think about this. To tell the message of Jesus, Stephen, he doesn't uh, disregard the Old Testament. He doesn't disjoint the Old Testament, but he invites us to rediscover the story of the Old Testament, to rediscover it in light of the person of Jesus, to reconsider what was God doing with all that old stuff, with things like the temple and with the law that came through Moses. And he's going to do this by, by focusing really on three things through his sermon. He's going to focus on God's presence, on humanity's rejection, and on something new. This is, this is kind of the things that will draw out what he's getting at as we walk through his, a summary of his sermon today. And as I said, I know for many of us, the Old Testament, it's like, it's like the most confusing part of the Bible, right? It, it tends to be this part we're, we're um, least familiar with. And so maybe for some of us, we're going to struggle as we go through his sermon here. We might fail to see how does any of this have to do anything with us in this room. And I think that's fair, but I think we also need to consider that um, like any place in the Bible, really, we first need to understand what did this sermon mean to the original audience before we can think about what it meant for us, right? And so we're just going to walk through this three-part summary of his sermon, and then after that, we're going to circle back around and talk a little bit more about what does this mean for us in this room. All right? That's the plan. So we'll start here with God's presence, because that's what Stephen starts with. And so why is this his first uh, focus? Well, remember, he was accused of being against the temple, which was not just a building for the Jewish people, but it was, like, it was basically like the hot spot of God's presence, that if you wanted to go and be in the presence of God, if you wanted to go to have a relationship with God, you would go to the temple. And so what Stephen's going to do is he's going to recount the various ways throughout the Old Testament that God has been present, that he has appeared to his people. And so he starts by saying this. He says, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham, while he was still in Mesopotamia 
before he lived in Iran. And so, of course, Stephen's going to start with the father of the Jewish faith, Abraham, because it was to Abraham that God began to make these promises, that one day there was going to be this great nation, Israel, that would come from his descendants, and that he was going to give them the promised land where the temple would eventually be built. But Stephen points out that God began to appear to Abraham before he was in the promised land. Actually, while he was still in Mesopotamia, hundreds of miles from where the temple would be built in Jerusalem. That, that before people would go to the temple to, to have this relationship with God, God came to them. God initiated this relationship. He was the one who took it upon himself to make his presence known to his people. And we're going to see Stephen show a similar kind of idea as he gets into the story of Joseph. And so I'm sure a lot of us are probably familiar maybe with the story of Joseph. Like, he was the dude with the coats, and he got rejected by his brothers, right? That whole thing, sold as a slave. Well, look what uh, Stephen has to say about that whole story. He says this, because the patriarchs, or Joseph's brothers, because they were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. That Stephen points out that even in Egypt, even in like the enemy of Israel, God was there. God was present in that situation, that his presence extends even into enemy territory, even in the midst of betrayal and brokenness. And so he's just going to continue to go through the story of the Old Testament and share how God has been consistently present in taking the initiative to form this relationship with his people. But I think the story uh, that kind of draws out this the best is the story of Moses. And so Moses is a character that gets a ton uh, of of airtime in the Bible, right? His story, it covers four whole books of the Old Testament. So I think it's very significant that, that Stephen takes a few paragraphs just to highlight one particular scene from the story of Moses. Look what he says in verse 30. He says, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And so another kind of classic Bible story that we sometimes tell of when Moses was out kind of shepherding the sheep, right? And he sees this burning bush. And as he goes over, he finds that God is appearing to him, is present with him, is wanting to say things to him. And look at what God says to him. In verse 33, it says, Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And I think this last phrase here is really significant because Stephen was accused of speaking against the holy place of the temple. And so Stephen, what does he do? He, he reminds the Jewish people of the time the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to Moses in a bush and announced that it was that place that's the holy ground. The, the, the holy place was not because of the temple, but it was because of God, where God was. The point being that God doesn't need the temple. God doesn't need Jerusalem. God can use a bush in the wilderness if he wants, but wherever God is, that place becomes the temple. That place becomes the meeting place with God. The Stephen's point is that throughout this whole story, God has been the one taking this initiative to, to form a relationship with, to, to dwell and to meet with his people. And that leads to this next focus of humanity's rejection. That even though God has been the one taking the initiative to kind of form this relationship, 
God's people have continued to reject him. And this rejection is actually first seen in the leaders that God would choose to raise up. That all these characters are certain individuals that that God came to and kind of raised them up for the specific purpose of leading God's people. But time and time again, they're rejected by the Israelites. You know, we already talked about the story of Joseph who was rejected even by his own brothers. And those brothers, they would go on to become like the founding fathers of the Jewish faith. They, They would be the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this rejection was kind of built in from the start. But I think once again, Stephen's point is maybe most clear in the story of Moses. And so Stephen's going to talk about how God kind of through miraculous ways raised up Moses as this leader, rescuing him in Egypt and then giving him all this training. And then finally giving him this task to to rescue God's people from Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, and to lead them into the promised land. But look what he says about this in verse 39. He says, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. That instead of obeying Moses and trusting God, they continue to uh, complain about him, right? To grumble against him as he's leading them through the wilderness, asking him to take them back to Egypt and, and ultimately really rejecting him. But Stephen's point isn't even that they just rejected God's leaders, but this was a rejection of God himself. Because look at what he'll go on to say. He says, they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And that was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. And this would have kind of been like a low blow by Stephen here. He basically takes them back to like the worst moment kind of in their history, the golden calf incident. And so this would have been when Moses was up on Mount Sinai meeting with God, beginning this new relationship with the Israelites. But the Israelites were down below thinking that God had abandoned them. And so they asked Aaron, Moses' brother, to basically make this little idol so they could pretend that they have a God. To, to, to literally create something of their own hands to worship as if it was a God. And this would have been ridiculous. Like, like the living God just rescued them. He, he just literally parted the Red Sea. They just saw this. And they're already worshiping something of their own creation. They're already rejecting this relationship with God. This would have been like cheating on your spouse on your honeymoon. This is, this is unthinkable, right? God had just formed this relationship with them. And they're already running from him. They're already rejecting God. And Stephen's going to go on to point out this wasn't like a one-time thing. No, this was a pattern that was repeated all throughout the Old Testament that that God's people's hearts are continually running from God, running to other things. That God continues to extend this relationship, to to initiate this, this relationship with them, but they continue to reject him. And that leads to Stephen's final focus of something new, that, that throughout this whole story, God has been saying that he's going to do something new. Remember, the accusation uh, was that the message was against Moses and the temple. And so what Stephen's going to do, he's going to show them that Moses and the temple, they were pointing to something new. That, that even though God gave Israel th- these leaders, and even though God gave Israel the temple, there was, there was this hope that one day God would do something more than that. That God would do something greater. A point that he makes not by going to the New Testament, but again, to the Old. 
Look what he says in verse 39 as he's discussing Moses. He says, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. And so here Stephen quotes Moses' own words in Deuteronomy 18 that even Moses recognized he wasn't the final plan, that, that he wasn't the ultimate, that one day God was gonna raise up a new prophet. And so rather than the message of Jesus being against Moses, it agrees with Moses that, that, that they needed, that the people of God needed a new leader, that, that the law that Moses came and the leader that he, it wasn't going to be enough. They needed something more. And that leads us to the temple. Look what uh, Stephen says about that in verse 48. He says, however, the most high does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so here Stephen quotes the prophet Isaiah explaining that even though God allowed them to build a temple, they couldn't honestly believe that the God of the universe somehow only lived in this building that they made, right? That the temple was just a symbol. It was just a signpost pointing to this greater reality of God's presence, of this relationship they could have with God. And they can't expect that something that they literally built with their own hands somehow contained the God of the universe who created everything. Actually, commentators point out that when Stephen says houses made by human hands, he's actually accusing them of idolatry. That in the same way that they worshiped this golden calf that they made by their own hands, now they're worshiping this, this building, this temple that they've constructed with their own hands. And so the point is, Stephen's point here is that the problem wasn't the old stuff. The problem was that God's people were so stubborn and hard-hearted that they continued to reject God by making an idol out of the old stuff. That they continued to reject this relationship that he's extending to them. I like the way one commentator put it. He said, Christianity that confines God to a certain place, system, or ritual is more like idolatry than Christianity. Which on a side note, I think maybe we need to ask the question, is there any ways that we do that, right? Like, is there certain old stuff, religious traditions that are based more on our preferences than the Bible that we cling to that maybe are keeping God from doing what he wants to do today? But nevertheless, Stephen's point here is that the temple, the law, all these leaders, this whole story, all this old stuff, it was pointing to a greater need, to, to something greater, that God's people needed. And what was that new thing? Well, it wasn't a new building or a new law or a ritual. It was a person, right? The person of Jesus Christ. That's what this whole story has been about. And so Stephen's point is that the message of Jesus is that what God has been trying to do all along, to dwell with, to have this relationship with his people, that he's finally done it in and through Jesus, that that's who the, all these things are pointing to. That God has made a way through Jesus to finally dwell with humanity. And that even though God's people killed this new, rejected this new leader, Jesus, and crucified him on the cross, God raised him from the grave. And through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he has dealt with every single barrier between us and him in a way that the law and Moses and the temple could never do because it took God himself to do it in his own son. 
And that's what this story has been telling us. And so now we, by faith, can enter into this relationship that God has been been working towards through this whole story. And now God's presence is not just with us, but because of Jesus, it can be within us because he sends his spirit, right? That the message of Jesus tells us that God is first and foremost present in the person of Jesus Christ. And because of that, he is now present in the people of Jesus Christ. That, that we become his new temple, that we become the new place where God lives and, and we can have this real relationship with God. And that's this message that Stephen is inviting us to rediscover, right? And so as we close, like I said, I just want to talk about a, a few implications of what that means for us in this room. And so first, I think it means this, that we can't fully understand the message of Jesus without the Old Testament, and man, I think it's great that we like to focus on the New Testament and Jesus, but Stephen shows us that all that old stuff, it like really mattered because God was using all that old stuff to prepare his people to finally meet Jesus. And I think in the same way, God uses the story of the Old Testament to prepare us to finally meet Jesus and to fully understand the message of Jesus. You know, I, I think it's really interesting to think about what God has actually given us in his word, like what the Bible actually is. Because he didn't give us a theological textbook, right? He didn't give us a rule book. He didn't give us just an abstract summary of what we need to know or believe to get saved. He gave us a story, a long, unfolding, redemptive narrative this redemptive drama that's confusing at times and takes all these twists and turns. Why? Why is that? Why did God do it this way? Well, I don't think we can say for sure, but I think in part it's because it's only an incredible story like the Bible that can prepare us to meet our incredible Savior, Jesus. Now, I think it's because every single page in the Bible it is shining a bright light on the person of Jesus Christ, and it's only a story like that could do him justice. It needed to be this incredible and long and significant, right? And so instead of disregarding the Old Testament or treating it as this disjointed story, I think God is inviting us to see it as a story that leads to him, a unified story that leads to the person of Jesus that we can know and have a relationship with. And so I think when we read it this way, it helps us resist the urge of trying to fit God into our story, of trying to write him into ours, of just reducing the Bible to this random thing where we extract a couple principles from to make our lives a little better. But I think when we see this whole story is about Jesus, it's telling us about him, we get to be part of his story. That we get to be invited into what he is doing in this world. That we don't just fit God somewhere into our priorities, but we reorient our lives around him because he's better and he has a better story for us. And just like Jesus is the hero of this story, he becomes the hero of ours too. I think that's what happens when we read the Bible this way and we understand what it is. And so maybe you're in this room, and if you were honest, you just struggle with the Old Testament. Maybe you just struggle reading the Bible in general. 
Well, I want to point you to some resources that will help you read the Bible this way. Read it as a unified story all about Jesus, this relationship we can have with him. And so here's a couple resources that can help you with that. We have a series called You Are Here, which is an awesome, I think it's 10 or 11 part series that just walks through the big story of the Bible. And the second is the class called What is the Bible in the Equipping Division? Both of these resources are all about orienting us to understand this Bible, understand God's word as a unified story that leads to Jesus. And so I'd invite you guys to check these out on our website, listen to this series, or, or sign up for the class next time it's available. And that leads us to this last implication I have for us. And with this, I'll invite the band up. But I think uh, it's understanding the message that sends us out on the mission. You know, Acts 7, it's actually like a really key chapter in the book of Acts. It acts kind of like a hinge point in this book. Because up until this point, uh, the message of Jesus has only been proclaimed in Jerusalem, where the temple actually is. But beginning in chapter 8, the message starts to spread to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I think when we consider the meaning of this message, it makes sense why. That if God's presence isn't bound to the temple, if it's not bound to a building, it can be brought to the world. That if God's presence isn't bound to a certain group of people, to, to a certain ethnic group, it can be brought to all nations. And I think this is why we are, are, are under, why we're talking about the message of Jesus before we get to the mission of Jesus. Because when we get the message, it sends us out on the mission. Because, you know, we talk about it all the time, that the church, it isn't just a building, right? It's the people. But I think sometimes we can believe that God's present, that God is uniquely present, like within these four walls. And when God's people are here, he is. Like, like he's with us even right now. But when God's people leave the building, his presence goes with us. He leads us out of here to take his presence and his message to the world outside of here, right? That when we look at the story of the Bible, we see that if God spanned heaven and earth to have a relationship with us, then man, God's people can span oceans and communities and classrooms and neighborhoods to bring his message and his presence to others, that our prayer is that as we rediscover this incredible message of Jesus, we would rediscover God's heart for the world and for those who don't know him. That we would see that. That there's nothing more important than, than sharing his message and his presence with those who don't know him. And that as we gain perspective on this incredible story, we would see that God is inviting us to be a part of it. And so I'd encourage you guys even now to think about who maybe God is calling you to bring his message and his presence to. Let's pray. <laughs> well, Lord, um, God, thank you so much or that you have given us in your infinite wisdom this incredible story, Lord, that somehow you knew this is what we needed most, God. That no other um, book, no other story Nothing else could do justice to who you are, Lord, and what you've done in the person of Jesus Christ, Lord. That we needed so much more than a building or law or whatever, God. We needed a savior. We needed you, Jesus. And God, thank you for holding nothing back 
from chasing us down, Lord, even, even when not just these people and these stories we read about have rejected you, but even us in this room have rejected you. But God, you've continued to pursue us in the person of Jesus. And Lord, we just praise you for that. Lord, I'm just in awe of uh, who you are and, and what this whole story is telling us. And so God, as we, as we get that message, Lord, as that message grips our hearts and our minds, Lord, I pray that just like you've sent Jesus, you would send us. You would send us into this world with, with your message and with the presence that you've given us by, in your spirit, Lord, you would send us to bring it to others, God. Maybe even those you're putting on our hearts right now. And God, I pray for anybody in this room who is investigating you, Lord, who maybe hasn't started a relationship with you. God, I pray they would see just the great lengths that you have gone to to make a way for you to know, him, know them, Lord. That you have even given your own son and God, I pray that they would embrace this relationship you are extending to them because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, thank you, God. Thank you for who you are. We love you, Jesus. Pray all this in your name. Amen.